Welcome back to the Cordell and Cordell and Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, Managing Partner and CEO of Cordell and Cordell. Uh, we'll continue to bring you this podcast twice each week in addition to our virtual town halls, which we hold every month where we uh, gather the panel of Cordell and Cordell attorneys to where you can log in, ask questions live and get answers right then and right there. So check it out. Go to CordellCordell.com and, and look for our virtual town hall series coming up here in April. You can check out all of our previous podcasts as well as our town halls by going to our YouTube channel or subscribe. You'll get updated when these podcasts get uploaded every week, twice each week moving forward. Uh, as always, uh, this isn't legal advice. We want to make sure you schedule a consultation if you need one. That is the only way to properly get the information on your case and, and to properly guide you through what is going on in your life. You can do that by going to CordellCordell.com or giving us a call at 866-DADS-LAW. And again, joining us, repeat guest, Jacob over in Virginia. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on again. So today, this is, uh, we'd set off topic or off camera, this is one we haven't touched and, and, and it comes up, I think routinely at least, but I see all the time where uh, someone will say, hey, you know, I'm, I've got these recordings or I want to record her, or, I want to catch her doing this or saying that. And, you know, then you have to kind of go through the whole scenario about what can you do, what should you do, what are the federal rules, what are the local rules. So let's generally talk about you know recording someone and let's start with the, the federal rules of evidence i know we'll get technical here uh, but let's start at the federal level at least and then we can kind of dip down into at least your state etc right yeah so when when we're talking about any kind of evidence whether it's a, a document a picture uh, or recording a video uh, the first thing that we have to do under any almost any rule of evidence is authenticate it uh, in the federal rules of evidence, which we'll just base, kind of base everything off of today, um, this rule of evidence 901, and here's what it says. It says, to satisfy the requirement of authenticating or identifying an item of evidence, the proponent must produce evidence sufficient to support a finding that the item is what the proponent claims it is. So in other words, if you have an uh, audio recording you have to present some sort of evidence, typically just by your own testimony, that the recording is, is actually what you say it is. Uh, so if it's a recording of your ex saying some you know, X, Y, and Z, you testify to that, and that should be enough to let the court know that it actually is uh, a true and accurate reflection of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, the foundation, uh, honestly, it's funny. When you think about it, it perhaps from a lawyer's perspective, not the client, can be the most challenging for an inexperienced lawyer to lay a proper foundation to get these things into evidence. I've, I've done it to lawyers who are, are newer where you just object and they, they stumble through it because there are very technical requirements to get that person to testify to. Uh, and But it's, it's the reason I think it's important to bring up is from a client's perspective, you know, let's just say they take a photo or a video. I'm like, that's her. Everyone knows it's her. Just you know, it should be an in evidence, right? Well, we live in a world now where, at least, I mean, now more than ever, but even 10, 15, you know, the last years, where they could be edited, they could be cropped, they could be, you know, we don't know when the timing is. And now we're living with deep fakes where this computer technology can, it, it is really amazing. And now I think foundation and this federal rule becomes so much more important, not only from us putting evidence in, but really defending against evidence. And we have to look at it both ways. I mean, you don't want a deep fake. I was just reading an article two weeks ago 
about this cheerleader who was kicked off the team and it was a mother who created a deep fake, superimposed the face on somebody smoking weed and it wasn't her. I mean, it was clear then it was proven. And so, I mean, I know that wasn't a court case, but it just kind of emphasizes this whole rule and the federal rules to satisfy the requirement of authenticating the document to make sure it's real, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a big, a big part of it. And part of, from our perspective of authenticating some of the things that you as, as the proponent of uh, a video, uh, as you speak with your attorney, we're going to make sure that we know when you took that video, right? What device you took it on, what you did when you transferred it from your phone or iPad or your ring uh, system to your computer, to the email, to your attorney, to your attorney even naming it, right? It's almost like that chain of custody that we need to provide for any kind of recording uh, that could potentially be tampered with. And that, that ends up being some of those questions that as an attorney, uh, we will ask you or that we will question the other side on is, did they go through this and how, how did it go from them to the court mm -hmm. so that we can make sure that it's, it's not a deep fake, that it's not edited, that it's not missing something. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this goes back, I mean, I've been doing this for 28 years. I had a case with a, a prisoner and we introduced some evidence on Polaroids and I had to walk him through the authentication and there was allegations he was assaulted. And uh, at the, we rested our case, just thinking of the authentication and just relevancy. They, the state called an expert who's a, a Polaroid expert that the serial number didn't match up to the time frame in which he claimed to lay the authentication and the foundation for taking it. And it was the serial number matched up to some eight years post event. Uh, just interesting how, you know, why you have to lay this foundation and, and to, to prove its authenticity. And as you suggest, timing, you know, at or near the chain of custody, who had control of it during the time, where did it go, were there any other copies made, is this the original or, you know, whatever it may be, or kept in the normal course of business. But this applies to texts, emails, photos, videos, recordings, all of that, right? Yeah, the this, this same authentication rule applies to, to all of that. Yeah. And so, I mean, the focus of today was you know, specifically audio or video recordings, but you can really take anything we talk about today and apply it to, to photographs or, or, or any other kind of evidence that, uh, that you're presenting to the court. Yeah. And I think the first reaction for some of my clients have always been, well, you know, I cleaned this up because there was some, you know, in the email string that was relevant. And so I just wanted to make it easier for you and, and the court and the other side to read. Right. And that's a no, no, don't alter things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the, the very first rule uh, or tip that we would say is anything you've got digital audio video, don't, don't do anything to it. Uh, as really, as soon as you can give that to your attorney, or as soon as you decide to get an attorney, give any, any amount of, of these recordings or pictures to your attorney right away. Yeah. Uh, and and we'll, we'll work with you to make sure that you haven't uh, not done anything to, to these things so we can document that so that when, when we're questioned on it, uh, we, we have this whole record, at least on our end, that you haven't tampered with anything. Uh, that way we help preserve 
your credibility and and the authentic, authenticity of these recordings or pictures. Yeah, and I think it's it's one of the questions I ask consults. I mean, do you have photos, recordings, videos, whatever it is? Uh, let's talk about it and have a conversation about one whether it's even useful. And two, if it is, you know, I want possession so that we have you know, the solid chain of custody, that there's nothing that would have happened to it. And I, I imagine that's something you ask clients as well. Yes. More, more and more, we, we have all this digital evidence that, that we want to produce. And it does raise some of these other questions, not just is it authentic, but even in trial, if we're trying to present it, one, we have to show that it's relevant, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it may not be relevant. Two, there may be some... Uh, major hearsay uh, uh, objections that, that can come up. So we need to review it to make sure we can apply an exception or, or we're coming up with certain objections to you know, uh, recordings that have been produced. Uh, also, we want to make sure that in these recordings, especially that you're not committing a crime in taking these mm -hmm. recordings because uh, that, that becomes one of the bigger issues that I'm starting to see with people recording from their phone or um, and doing it secretly, uh, there, there's a whole other set of rules that start to apply that we need to consider. Yeah, the, the one-party consent rule, I mean, there are many states that have that, uh, meaning that you can consent so long as you're a party to the conversation or engaged. Uh, those are the things, but you have to be careful about what you're doing. And especially, I mean, I've had uh, clients come in the door that said, look, yeah, I had this recording device. I attached it to the landline. It was able to record every single conversation and they weren't a party to it. And that opens up a Pandora's box in terms of uh, criminality. Even in the toughest of times, there are usually opportunities for relief. Many husbands and dads listening now are struggling to stay current on alimony and child support orders. You should know that this crisis may allow you to modify your support obligations, but time is of the essence. If you're a guy needing help right now, not someday when things are back to normal, call us at Cordell & Cordell. This is what we do. I think as you suggest, consent to record, I mean, that's a big thing, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of brings into question some uh, of the you know, each state's wiretapping laws. Um, main thing that, that you had mentioned here, Scott, was uh, one-party consent versus a two-party consent uh, state. Virginia is a one-party consent state where if you are part of the conversation, you can consent to it being recorded, meaning that in practicality, you don't have to tell the other person mm -hmm. um, as long as it's a conversation that you're having. Right, but if you're attaching something to a vehicle uh, or installing a hidden camera or something to the phone and it's recording these conversations that do not um, involve you as a participant in that conversation, then that really could uh, be a violation of one of these wiretapping laws. And in some states, uh, based on some of the research I've done, it can be a felony. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's not something that we need to add to your custody uh, or visitation case or your divorce case. Yeah, it's, it is such a slippery slope when you set up a camera inside the house. So one of the things, if everyone's familiar, I think you mentioned like the Nest uh, cameras that are the ring doorbells, they changed their policy 
that the light, there's a light that has to be visible now. It used to be you could optionally turn it off, but it, that, that kind of somewhat com complies with the conspicuous nature of a camera being visible and knowing that it's recording. But that leads into I had a client, gosh, 15 years ago, who thought, okay, I'm gonna set up a camera in the bedroom because I know my wife's cheating and I'm gonna catch her, I'm gonna be out of the office and he had reasonable suspicion. And so what, you know, here he is setting this up and what he did unbeknownst to him is catch her, it was a second marriage for both of them. It was her, his stepdaughter, her daughter, who was like 16 or 17, had friends over and started getting, you know, very inappropriate, you know, video. Uh, whether they were undressing and she, mom finds the camera. Now we've got a whole host of issues involving child pornography, you know, uh, unauthorized video. And in his intent was simply to catch marital misconduct. But what he got was something completely unexpected. And so now we had the feds involved. Uh, it was a federal crime. It was crazy. And so there's just so much danger when you have an obviously innocent intent to, and you're, you're really angry, you're upset about the marriage, you know, you're trying to catch them. It's a conversation to have with your attorney first and foremost to talk about what the relevant laws are in your state. And they vary across the country. You know, we start with the federal rules of evidence just because that's an admissibility part, uh, but there are wiretapping rules, federal and local. And so sometimes even if you have consent, we have issues getting it into court, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Here, here in Virginia, one of the rules is uh, we, we're a one-party consent state, so you can record uh, these sort of sort of things. And uh, but when it comes to actually bringing it into into court uh, as evidence, uh, there can be objections made that uh, it's not uh, permissible. Now. Uh, in, in criminal cases, that's they have their own set of rules. But in civil cases, at least here in Virginia, um, a recording is not going to be admissible in a civil action, which could include, you know, your custody, visitation, child support, or any other civil action, uh, unless the the statement made in the recording is an admission of a criminal act. That way, it's it would be admissible or uh, if it's you no know, part of a, a divorce case. Mm -hmm. Now, Virginia's statutes, particularly just on a divorce or separation case, it doesn't necessarily apply to a custody and visitation case or a child support case that doesn't have divorce issues as well. And so there can be some of those uh, hiccups um, in, in coming, you know, in a recording coming in. Uh, I've been on no, the winning and losing side of that. I've gotten recordings in um, when they probably should have been kept out because the other attorney wasn't aware of this particular statute or exception. Right. And I've also argued that something shouldn't come in, but the court is like, mm, no, it's it's your guy admitting to doing something really yeah. bad. Um, and and I've, I've had clients kind of hose on that on that side of things. Yeah. But it implicates overall, both sides. I mean, I was going to say, yeah. you know, anytime, and especially if they give. I, you know, us custody of this perhaps unlawful recording. Now we're, we have an issue because now we've taken possession of something which implicates everyone, you know, and, and it's, that's why, and I think as we wrap up this segment is what are you, what's the best practice here? You know, if you want to say just generally, not particularly about clients and their, their cases, but generally, what do you recommend as the best practice in this area? I'd say generally, um, I'd probably look, look at maybe, Three, three things, maybe four things. First, 
And foremost, I think ma the main point, main takeaway should be talk to your attorney. Mm -hmm. Every state varies very differently. So you need to know your specific, specifically what your state's rules are. Um, second, at least here in Virginia, one, one of the things I would say to do or in any one party consent state is be very conspicuous about your recording. Announce that you are recording this uh, conversation. They'll pull your phone out. Be real conspicuous about it. Because then if they proceed to say something damaging to their case, they're, they're already at least tacitly consenting because they know that they're being recorded. Mm -hmm. um, I would make sure to do that. I think it's kind of a win-win, right? If they go and say something damaging to their case, that's a win to you. And if they are a little bit more reserved and they're not calling you all kinds of names, hey, that, that's a win too, right? You're, you're kind of forcing you know, maybe some good co-parenting or some cooperation there. I'd also say when it comes to which apps to use, I mean, take some time to research the apps. There are some that will automatically do it uh, on, on typically non-iPhones. Um, iPhones, uh, from my experience, the app will kind of merge a call, right? So it kind of puts the other party on notice that the call's been merged. I've also seen some devices that will uh, like hook up to like the bottom of your phone mm -hmm. and that it's a separate, a separate recording device. So then it's not, we're not using what was on your phone because we don't want your phone to have to be taken in by the court for uh, evidence or um, you know, forensic examination. You have a separate um, detachable advice uh, a device that you know, can keep the recording. The other thing I would probably just say at the very, you know, just in closing is just uh, be aware that you may be recorded. Yeah. Uh, so don't, don't say anything in any kind of conversation with your, with your ex or the opposing party that you don't want uh, the judge to hear. Uh, I, I just had a case where, my client uh, made, made some pretty big mistakes and he, I mean, he was you know, flipping off cameras and talking to these cameras and saying mm -hmm. pretty nasty things about his uh, spouse. Uh, and that just actually resulted in um, him having his visitation suspended completely because of what he said and because of this behavior that was caught on camera and that wow. the opposing side went through everything. They authenticated it and, I mean, it really, really damaged his case, and there's well, not a whole lot there. But had he really assumed that this was going to go in front of the judge, I, I, I would have hoped he would have changed uh, the way he was approaching things. Yeah. It's one of the mistakes we talked about in the 10 stupidest mistakes guys make when facing divorce or going through a divorce, and that is talking too much. You know, I, I use the example of Texas Hold'em. You know, if you're dealt aces, you're not going to let everybody know at the table before anyone's putting any money in the in the pot. And that's the same thing. Just be very wary of what you're communicating, what you're saying, what, you know, whether it's bad, good, disclosing strategy, you know, letting your anger come out. Because you, I, I would say make an assumption, as you said, make an assumption every time they're recording everything you say, either audio and or video, and then you're going to be safe. Uh, you know, so whatever you say, be prepared for it to be said in court. And if you're comfortable with it, then so be it. So... Well, Jake, thanks for uh, joining. A great topic, uh, real good, helpful information for guys, and I appreciate you joining today. Pleasure to be on, always. Well, continue to tune in twice every week. Topics just like this. I always get a pad of paper and a pencil out and just take some notes, and then schedule that consultation at 866-DADS-LAW. 
go to the web, cordellcordell.com, check us out on social, and more importantly, check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast. You'll get updates when it's uploaded twice every week. And then the virtual town hall, you want to check that out coming up in April and every month going forward again through 2021. So until next time, have a great week.